This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. In the 1990s, 3 to 5% of American children were believed to have what was referred to as disordered attention. By 2013, 11% were believed to have disordered attention. 1990, 600,000 children were on Ritalin. And by 2013, three and a half million children were on stimulants. So was this better diagnosing of the problem? Is the diagnosis actually reliable? And is there an ironic result of treating the problem pharmacologically? All these questions are explored in Casey Schwartz's book, Attention a Love Story. But the telling is enhanced by her own personal romance with Adderall, her explanation of what brilliant writers like David Foster Wallace have to say about attention, and just why attention might be the key to a full life. And Casey's writing has appeared in the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, Newsweek, Departures, and more. Uh, this is her second book. And just for added heft to this conversation, Casey has a master's in developmental neuroscience and psychoanalysis. So Casey, on behalf of all these different constituents, welcome. Roxanne, it's truly such a pleasure to be talking to you. Oh, you're so sweet. So, uh, you know, reading all of this, I have, before reading this book, and interviewing Jenny O'Dell for her book on how to do nothing. I have like a sort of just enough to be dangerous understanding of <laughs> ADD or Adderall or any of these issues. So let's start with this question. How is this condition, what was called, what was that word, disordered attention, even diagnosed? Um. You know, what? from what I've gleaned, I mean, you know, you're asking me this because, of course, my book starts with my own experience being on Adderall for a decade plus and sort of, you know, getting kind of dubiously diagnosed myself in my early 20s with ADHD, even though I really don't, I really didn't have ADHD. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to that, but I love that you even practiced for your appointment because you knew what you, you what would get you the prescription it was it was sort of shamefully easy to get considering how addictive these drugs really are um and you know um i think by way of answering your question i think from what i've gleaned and what i've sort of seen i think that the process of diagnosing adhd can be wildly different um, from one clinician to another because I think that some really insist on doing a full battery of assessment and sort of, let's say it's a high school kid reaching out to talk to their teachers, looking at their academic reports, sort of getting a holistic sense of that child, where others are 
quite well known and even notorious for just dispensing this diagnosis within 45 minutes. If you answer a questionnaire, the standard questionnaire looking for um, these symptoms in the way that they want you to answer them, um, which is what I did at 22, um, when I was 22 and I had decided I wanted an Adderall prescription. So let's go, because there's a couple of things I want to make sure we get to cover, because the book has multi-dimensions. One is your story. The other is the general story about ADHD or ADD. And the other is this very um, in, in, lively, intellectual, emotional understanding well, you bring in all these other people that are experts. So I want to make sure we get to each strand. Let's start with how did your romance with Adderall begin? 18 years old, freshman year of college, essay due the next day on a book I had not read. And I run to the room of a dear friend I had grown up with. And I said, what am I going to do? You know, here's my predicament. And she said, have you ever tried Adderall? I can't stand them. They make me want to do cartwheels down the hall all night. And that was for her a massive reason to, a massive source of aversion and reason to stay away from them. But for me, it was, it was so, Roxanne, it was the most seductive thing anyone could have said to me about what to expect from a drug experience. And, you know, I, I barely heard of them because it was only, it was the year 2000. So Adderall had been on the market all of four years. And it was just, it was all sort of vaguely, sort of only vaguely familiar. What Adderall was, what ADHD was. I took this pill that night, um, you know, this blue pill, I'll never forget it. And it was, it was revelatory. And I was up all night in my dorm room lounge, sort of reading, typing feverishly. The sun rose that next morning and I still wasn't tired. And it was like, you know, I had sort of been in this fevered state of bionic attention, mm. superhuman attention. And I thought, well, why wouldn't anyone choose to live like this permanently? Yeah. This is like, this is the answer, you know? And I think, you know, it's interesting because I, I had never consciously ever doubted or been sort of actively worried about my powers of attention. It hadn't occurred to me until I took that blue pill. And then I felt, no, my attention could be so much more enhanced. And I have to, I have to seek out these pills wherever I can find them. And you know, you use the term um, that your Adderall hours were your precious hours. It felt like that because Adderall was like this sort of silver, you know, it was the, the mythical silver bullet where it felt like it sort of solved, it solved the problem, whatever the problem was exactly, you know? And I just loved sitting in the darkest recesses of the library at my college and just losing myself in complicated texts that I now could focus on for hours effortlessly. You know, it was like there was such a um, ecstasy around it. And, and what did you start noticing about your non-Adderall world? No, I noticed, you know, it's funny, and, I, and I, I think a lot of people who take Adderall have shared this experience, is that you get very short-fused. You know, you're not sleeping well. 
You're not sleeping as much as you used to. You're taking amphetamines. Mm -hmm. You get irritable. You're humorless. I, I would isolate myself. I would hole up in my room all through college, wherever I lived, and I would just sort of resent my noisy roommates on the other side of the door and just hole up and sort of the, it felt like the only thing that was of real value was whatever work I was engaged in. Um, as if, you know, normal social life didn't count as much. That was kind of like the delusion of this drug. And Casey, at anywhere in here, were you thinking about that you ought to talk to a doctor or find out how much you ought to take? Or were you at all, do you remember even having a glimpse of a worry that you were taking a drug? Strangely, Okay, I, I feel, strangely, the, the, the big answer to that is mostly no. Yeah. Even though I overdosed my senior year of college and had to be rushed to the hospital in a snowstorm. Um, but it was just, but it was just a panic attack, like sort of induced by taking too many pills. Um, but I think in, in a more broad sense, I, you know, yes, I there was always this troubling underlying feeling of Faustian bargain. You know, mm -hmm. I'm taking these in so-called enhancing pills, but beneath that was I'm getting farther and farther away from my real self. And yeah. it's going to be harder and harder to get back to her. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, the statements that was really riveting to me it, is what you talk about the irony that in return for this illusion of attention, which became a narrow band, you actually lost your peripheral capacity to be attentive to what was around you. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, attention, as I'm sure we'll talk about, has so many, there's so many definitions of attention and there's so many sort of, we all have our own understanding of what it means to be paying attention. Mm. And the Adderall version of paying attention is this nose to, it's a sort of joyless nose to the grindstone. You know, you're, you're never just gazing out the window and inspiration catches you and you're just sort of easy and breezy. It's, it's quite the opposite of that sensation. So it's not expansive and it's not relaxed. Right. And so when did you start to realize you were in trouble? So, I mean, this, what started at age 18 became a full-blown dependency by the time I was in my 20s. I went all through graduate school on, on Adderall. And the, it was about age 24 um, that I came, I came back to school after, I think it was like a spring vacation, so upset, feeling like my life was really not my, my own anymore. And I sought out this wonderfully kind psychiatrist. And that really represented the first time I tried to get off the drug and that, that the part of me that wanted to get off the drug was bigger and stronger than the part of me that wanted to stay on. Um, and that was the first time that had been true since I started. Mm. But that, that didn't take that, that phase. You know, um, I continued on for another six years. And, and what really pushed you over the edge? Tell us about that not attractive meeting. Oh, I think, well, so I've been mired in, in my, writing my first book, which ironically was in large part about neuroscience, you know, all, all these brain findings as I'm tinkering with my own brain chemistry. 
And I'm mired in this book, mired in this book, and it's a big mess and I turn it in and the publisher just had no idea what to do with it and sort of called a meeting with me and said, we're canceling this basically. And I had just turned 30 and I, it was another snowstorm actually. And I'm just walking down the street after this thinking, you know, my God, I've sabotaged my, my career and everything mm -hmm. that I actually want so badly and hold so dear. Um, and you know, that was, that was, I think sort of rock bottom as they say. And, um, when I got this miraculous chance at a different publisher with a, with a different editor, um, that the day that I went in to meet him for the first time, I was not on Adderall and that represented really the beginning of the end. Yeah. So I want to move over to what you learned about the condition and how it's diagnosed in different ways in which it's um, talked about. So there is the common theory that it's genetic. Yes. I mean, all of these theories about ADHD, you know, none of them are proven. And there's no, there's no brain scam that like lights up and says, you've got this. Absolutely not. I mean, in the nineties, um, some of the original ADHD thinkers, um, often talked about some research that said, oh, you know, areas of the prefrontal cortex can be smaller in those with ADHD, I think it was, but none of that was conclusive at all. Um, and even to this day, there's not one definitive test that says yes or no, you have ADHD, you know? Um, and it, there's no blood test or brain scan that, that is determinative. So I think there is room for subjectivity, a lot of room for subjectivity in this diagnosis. And I also think that it's so easy to believe that you have ADHD because the mm. way that we live is so filled with distraction. You know, that in a way, like who doesn't feel sometimes that they have ADHD? Well, and that, so, so I, I'm going to come back to that because I know it, it, one of the things you talk about is that Adderall came on the market about the same time that the World Wide Web yeah. was taking hold. And that doesn't seem like a coincidence. But in contrast to Edward Hollowell and all of that popularity of the notion that it's genetic and making it sound like it was highly diagnosable uh, without questioning, maybe we just didn't have any tolerance for uh, distraction. There's this totally left field or right field theory uh, from a, a man by the name of Gabor Mehta. Is, is, is that how you pronounce Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate. Yes, so um, he's Hungarian, so I had an affinity um, to him. So share with us, because his theory was totally different. This is what attracted me to Gabor, with whom I, I was lucky to spend time with when I was researching this book. Um, he's a physician, Canadian, quite well known, um, his, and specializes in addiction and trauma. And, you know, um, has written, I think, five books, and he's, he's a brilliant man. And he believes, you know, he was diagnosed with ADHD himself. And then all three of his kids were diagnosed with ADHD. And yet he argues that it is absolutely not genetic and it is not biological, but rather being in a state of distraction is a way of taking yourself out of a painful environment. And you learn this skill when you're a child. 
but in some funny way, it actually is adaptive to sort of scatter yourself. This is how to not face what's in front of you, whether whatever, whatever's misaligned in your caretaking environment, you can, you can get away from it by being in this distractible, distracted state. And this is, this is Gabor's fascinating idea. And it's basically saying that being in a state of distraction is defensive, as the psychoanalyst would say. It's like, it's like a mm -hmm. mechanism. Um, and I, I found that very compelling because I feel like one of the things that's not often talked about on the subject of attention is how emotional it is. Mm. You know, we think of attention in terms of sort of intellectual terms or cognitive terms, and we don't think how difficult it is emotionally to just sit and be present. Um, and I think that's what Gabor's theory kind of gets at for me. So it actually, um, because, and when he talks about trauma, he, although his experience was traumatic, I mean, he was two months old when the Nazis took over uh, Budapest and his father was in a forced labor camp, but he doesn't suggest that you need that magnitude of a trauma to no. want to use distraction as a defense. Exactly. He, he would argue that just the typical family situation in, in Western society as it is now results in trauma, results in, you know, he would say it's, it's not just the bad thing that happened to you, it's the good thing that didn't happen to you. Mm -hmm. It's not being sort of in tune emotionally with your parents or seen or felt protected or taken care of. It's, it's these small things that can be registered as so traumatic by young children. And, and does his theory have a lot of currency? I know he's very respected. He's done TED Talks. People, you know, absolutely flock to his lectures. But within the medical community, what sort of reaction is there to his theory? Or how is it incorporated to how people are treated? I'm not sure. I would imagine it's so vastly different from doctor to doctor. I mean, it's, 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 it's infinitely easier to just hand out an Adderall prescription and yeah. sort of say the problem is solved. It's much harder to engage with the emotional dynamics underlying disordered attention. Yeah, because, you know, Casey, one of the things that was interesting to me is when I was reading one of the first um, studies or treatment of uh, what was the what was the first drug? Benza. Oh, um, right. Benzedrine. Benzedrine. So one of the things that so the precursor of Adderall, which is Benzedrine, was for disturbed or difficult children? Well, it, it was actually for, I believe it was for asthma. And this was like going back to the 20s. Oh, originally, right. right. Or they thought maybe it could be a decongestion. A decongestion. And um, this doctor actually in Providence, Rhode Island, who he was running this home for difficult and disturbed children. Um, was, and he gave them this drug and found quite by accident that it calmed them down and it, it made them sort of cheerfully focused. Um, and that was kind of the first time that someone observed that effect. Mm. So it was, it was an accidental discovery as, as so often happens in the history of, of pharmaceuticals.
But then in 2008, you talk about a journal, I think it was called Nature, where rather than be alarmed about the prevalence or the ramifications of Adderall, talked about, you know, it's just a fact of life. It, it, this is what you need to function in the world today if, if you're, you have a proclivity to this. I was surprised by that, Roxanne. This was this comes from conversations I had with some very well-known sort of neuroscientists and neuroethicists. They got together at a meeting and were talking about sort of the brave new world of cognitive enhancement, which Adderall is considered to be a part of. Um, and they were they were sort of I found it surprisingly nonchalant. They published a letter in the journal Nature kind of talking about how, you know, we sh this, this, the idea of Adderall shouldn't be so alarming, um, that it could just be seen as kind of a fact of life. Um, but I, I'm not sure, I mean, I know that at least one of the scientists who was part of writing that letter later said she's, she had more reservations a few years mm. later than she did and swept up in that particular moment. Yeah, so now let's, because time's going so fast. I mean, we could we could be here for a long time. You had a lot <laughs> in the book for us to talk about. So I want to see if we can, before we take questions, talk about um, two things. One is what attention is. Like, how, how do we think about attention and why is it appealing and in what form? So... You talk about David Foster Wallace's Kenyan commencement speech in 2005 um, that was titled, This is Water. And why was that commencement speech representative of Wallace's literally obsession with attention? Yeah, I mean, and I didn't know that Wallace was so obsessed with attention until I was sort of halfway through my own book research. But, you know, he gave this famous speech in 2005 where he talked about how when you're out in, in the world after graduation, you're just going through your sort of dreary daily routines. You're going to the grocery store. You're exhausted. You've just been at the office. And the tendency is to kind of look around with a lot of contempt for people around you and feel like you already, you know, you know what they're about and they're not as real or as important as you are. And he, he kind of argues that the way out of that feeling of just dismissing people around you is to pay closer attention mm. and, and sort of imagine the alternative, imagine their inner state could be so different than what you assume it to be. And that sort of attention is the way to compassion and the way to get yourself out of this kind of, you know, debased human interaction. I found that so moving and it, it actually reminds me so much of like our online discourse now on Twitter, mm -hmm. other platforms where there's this, this drive to just assume that you know everything about another human being and that you could just dismiss them and cancel them and, and show such, such little scant attention towards them. Yeah, and you have a quote in there um, from Simone Weil that, to me was one of the most wonderful quotes when I thought about the subject. And her quote uh, that you had in the book is, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. 
I'm so glad you picked up on that quote. That quote means so much to me. I saw that quote in 2013 and it blew me away. And I knew that she would like, when I, when I took up the subject of attention years later, I knew she would be a part of it because she wrote so profoundly about attention and what it means to pay attention to another person. And for her, that was like the, the most ethical thing you could do with your life is to try to look to your neighbor and say, what are you going through? And to really try to understand. And, and, and so the, the notion of, a, of attention being expansive as opposed to narrow, right? right. So when we think about att attention and Adderall, we think about drilling down so that, you know, you, you get that word, but that, when you, the way you write about David Foster Wallace and the way you talk about a man that you refer to as David Silvers, which I want us to spend a minute to get to, it's about an expansiveness. It's about taking everything in. I hate to use this word because it feels so overused, but with a kind of intentionality and presence. Yeah. Is that the way you came away thinking about it? Yes, and it's, it's also, I mean, this is not a how-to book. It's not prescriptive. You know that. Yeah. But, I mean, and, but people, I'm asked often, you know, so what, what do you come away, like, in, in your own life, how has this changed your, your approach to thinking about attention? And I just, I think the answer is to be as conscious as you can in, in the way that you were just alluding to, in a way that, that attention is precious and that you can apply intentionality to it and, and be richly rewarded. And the other two things that, and these are sort of out of order, but they come into uh, the notion of attention. One is the idea that you're fleeing something, that the, the inability to pay attention is because you can't, bear getting caught up into something you want to avoid. Did you find yourself thinking about that more in the process of writing this book? So much so. I mean, th th this book started, I mean, I, I was sitting around thinking, what do I care about enough to write my second book about? What upsets me? And what upset me was how casually we give away our attention to our devices and our screens and you know and um it was it was like we had no sense of the preciousness of it um so that that was and i i didn't really understand why have we all agreed to just disappear into our screen life so readily we've not put up a fight um and so you know as i was researching how to talk about attention which is such an kind of unwieldy subject because it's so big I realized, you know, in a way, the most compelling question for me is like, why? What is behind the fact that we are willing to spend hours and hours and hours lost in our screen life, even though it doesn't make us feel that good? You know, mm -hmm. it actually doesn't do, it doesn't, it's not like it's, it's, it doesn't leave us feeling good. So the question is, why do we keep doing it? And, um, you know, I don't have, you know, I, I, I think that's one of those questions that it's just too big to answer, but I think it is about fleeing from pain and fleeing from anxiety. It's sort of a way of putting your life on hold. Mm, just um, sort of blocking it off. Yeah, exactly. 
You know, you're sort of like, you're sort of suspended when you're on your phone. And, and so in the process of doing the research or talking to, so lots of people are on Adderall. I know adults who get diagnosed for the first time and, you know, Adderall certainly didn't go well for you, but do you, do you think that it ends up always having to go bad? Do you think that there are people taking Adderall in moderation where it serves the purpose that's needed for their makeup? I definitely do. And I also think that in terms of kids who have very severe cases of ADHD, I think Adderall can be kind of life-saving for them, not mm-hmm. just academically, but socially. Yeah. Um, but I also, I know that, that there are so many people in my situation that fell into the stickiest addiction where they felt like their life was just stuck. And I know because, I mean, I've actually heard from, at this point, probably thousands of them. Ever since I first wrote about Adderall um, back in 2016. Um, so it's, it's interesting because, yes, I think it can do good, but I think it's a tricky drug. And did you come up with some um, observation about the type of person that mm-hmm. ends up using it more than they ought to? I, I would hate to generalize, but since you ask, yeah, I, why not? <laughs> I think it's it's people who are very achievement oriented. Yeah, and they so desperately want to be extraordinary, and they so desperately want to succeed. You know, these are not druggies who are looking to sort of drop out of their life. These are these are people who, if anything, care too much about external markers of success. Yeah. And I think that psychology is really vulnerable. Yeah. You know, the other piece that, uh, that I thought was interesting is that along the way, you began to question the very nature of both your parents' work. Both of your parents are very accomplished um, journalists, and they were in the long form. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that, A, we, we, we might dismiss the long form these days, but when you were on Adderall, did you find yourself questioning the value of something like what your parents were doing, which was so, you know, um, thorough and encompassing and the long form? I mean, especially my mother. My mother is a magazine journalist, investigative re- journalist. Yeah, a great journalist. I love her pieces. Oh, I'm so glad, Roxanne. Thank you. Yeah, I love her. But she, you know, she her natural state is sort of to narrate at length, you know? And so the writing in long form is, is her natural media. You know, she could, she could narrate and narrate um, in, in the best way, of course. And I, you know, I grew up actually revering what, what she did um, and this idea that you sit and you sort of piece together a story um, at, at great length and in profound detail. So no, I mean, I, I, I never came to doubt it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Because yeah. I certainly don't. I mean, oh, no, not at all. And, I, you know, what I find in the bookstore is kind of a yearning for it, yet people express their own constant frustration of getting sucked into the rabbit hole of doing things that they don't even find satisfying, 
you know, I think we're learning more and more that the algorithms are making sure we're seduced by this, that it's not merely our lack of willpower that, yes, you know, that there is deep-seated psychological manipulation going on and we're just, you know, our attention sort of collateral damage. Oh, the software has us so nailed, Roxanne. Yeah. I mean, it knows it knows our weak spots. I mean, it we are we we almost have no chance up against its up against those vaunted algorithms. You know. So it, so how do we have a chance? How do we have a chance against it? I think I mean you know it's so ironic in a way that we're talking about this now. You know that our our life is our world is more virtual than ever. You know. Yeah. But I, I mean, tell me if you think, does this resonate for you? Because I think that actually being plunged into screen life as we have been during this pandemic has actually revealed the limits of our computers and our phones more than anything that came before. I mean, we're all still longing to be with each other in person. We're sad, we're bored, we're lonely. Well, you know, Casey, the, the, there's a couple things. One is, so I like, you know, gazillions of people have been Zooming meetings. And I find myself more exhausted yeah. than I would have been. And they're figuring out that the way you look and, and what part of your brain you might be using when you're Zooming and you're not picking up the, the um, connection that you have with a person in person. Oh, you know, maybe one-on-one, -on -one, like this you might, but if you're in meetings. So I haven't heard anybody say this, but I think you're exactly correct. I think that, I, I hope, I shouldn't say I think, I hope that one of the takeaways from this is to learn the unsatisfying nature of too much of this. Some of it's been good, you know, you're talking to friends and getting together with your family that are, you know, strewn across the planet easier and quicker. But I think by the second or third time, you know, after the novelty of it is off, yeah. you're like, you know what, this is not working. I want to like have lunch with you. I want to take a walk with you. Totally. I want to give you a hug. Exactly. You know, I want to pet your dog, whatever. <laughs> Actually, I was so struck. I mean, like the obvious, which is, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's death, I mean, people rushed to be in the street to register their outrage because the yeah. screens would not suffice. Yeah. And, you know, that was that said at all, you know? Casey, there's a great story in here um, that I think um, illustrated for me about the role of curiosity in our being attentive. Tell us about the trip uh, that on the train in India with your mom. Well, yes, and it's it's sort of, I'm touched that my mom keeps coming up tonight, but um, you know, my mom was my, I, I don't know if I made this clear before, but she was my sort of paragon of concentration growing up. And she had such powers of concentration. And we went to India a few years ago. She was writing an article about this, this newly refurbished train. And we were on this crazy train. It was like a seven day train ride through the Indian countryside. And we wound up at this sort of what they call the tiger preserve, but there were no tigers. And it was gonna be, it was like this, it's hard to even explain the madness of this day. It was a 10 hour day and this 
brutal sun and, and I hadn't brought a book and there were no tigers and we were in the middle of nowhere. And I was, you know, and I, and I, and then I thought, my God, why am I even here with my mom? I'm like, I'm 32. I'm single. What am I doing on this trip? And I, I went off into the back to try to take a nap. And when I came back, my mom, who had been so, again, as, as equally as disgruntled as I was. And you were trying to figure out how to get off the train. Oh, every, well, every day we would plot to get off this train, Roxanne, but it was like logistically impossible. And I come out from this nap and I see that my mom is sitting with the, the father and son who own this Indian tiger preserve and her notebook is out and her tape recorder is on. And she is in interviewing them in the most intense way. You know, how did, what's their story and how did they come to own this tiger preserve? And I can see that she is now having like the greatest day because she has purpose. She's in blissful absorption. She is in reporter mode. And she is loving it. You know, there's no more pointlessness. There's no more purposelessness. She's lost in attention and curiosity. Mm. And I remember I was like, and I resented it because I was so in awe of her. But I resented that like, oh, she's doing it and I'm still here in my bad mood, you know? <laughs> like, look, look, like looking back, it's like one of those like sort of indelible lessons that you have with your, with your own mother. You just never forget like how you can transform a moment. Yeah. And, and you do talk about this capacity where curiosity is, you know, it goes back to the Simone Weil quote, right? Yes. That the ability to say, I'm interested in you. I'm interested in what I can learn about you is an exhilarating form of attention. It's exhilarating. And by the way, it's so pleasurable. Yeah. <laughs> it takes you out of yourself. And that's the beautiful thing about it. And so, yeah, I, I, I certainly am not advocating this sort of nose to the grindstone kind of like, let's, let's be serious and pay attention yeah. sort of serious way. It's, it's, it's not like that. It's actually about cultivating such a pleasurable kind of curiosity to, to yeah. make life bigger. So I don't, you probably don't have a book handy because you moved rooms. Yeah, we had an emergency. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a paragraph uh, of yours. Um, so you, you, you're talking about paying attention can turn any situation, however pointless, however painful, into sheer, sheer human richness. Um, and then you say there's another thread here, though, that I think is worth pointing out because I believe it's something of a universal. Attention is the value we aspire to, but also what we castigate ourselves with, punishing ourselves for our own imperfections, our own failures to concentrate. In India, I was in awe of my mother, but I was also angry with myself for failing to be a good traveler, which you just said absorbing the world around me without a trace of complaint. It is exactly this view of my own intentional shortcomings that had gotten me in trouble when I was 18 years old, convinced me that my brain needed attention pills in order to be good enough, a conviction I couldn't shake for more than a decade. And even then, not entirely. It's a suspicion that haunts me now, still, all these years later, it's a question I still haven't answered. And, and you have the other companion question 
to that, which I'm going to ask you as part of this conversation. And that is, is your natural, have you discovered that your natural attention is just fine? Mostly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what part? No. But Roxanne, sometimes I wish it were a little better. <laughs> <laughs> but don't we all wish that something's a little better? Absolutely. And I feel like attention is one of those things we're all chasing. This, like, we all have some fantasy of the perfect attention, you know, how it was before technology. Yeah. How it was, you know, in the forest two centuries ago. Yeah. And I wonder if even then they were wondering how, you know, how was it earlier? Maybe there's always this sense that, you know, you could get to a purer and more ideal form of it. Yeah. So I'm going to take a couple of questions. Those of you who are on have any questions. Uh, so this person whose name I don't know, uh, I love the book, especially all the threads you expertly wove together. I'm wondering what's next. Are you working on a new book now? Oh, that's what, what a lovely question. Um, I'm, I, well, I've got this six month old baby. So I'm how's that a baby doing for your attention? So what I, everyone said, you can't focus when you have a baby, but yeah. I have not found that to be true. The problem for me is that I don't have time. Yeah. But when I do have an hour, I use it. Right. So I, in a funny way, I feel like he's sharpened my attention. It's just that I so rarely get to implement it. But for some reason, I'm, I'm, I'm exploring a new book about um, Southern California. I'm, I'm, so that's, that's slowly in the making, I think. And why, why LA or Southern California? I'm so fascinated by LA's history, like the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and I just have this impulse to just sort of dive into that era and that, and kind of be in that atmosphere right now. And, and just figure it out. Exactly. But I'm at the very earliest stages. So how do you go about even informing yourself? Do you start reading books about LA, going to interview people and then see what pops up? Right now, because I think it's a historical book. I'm just reading and reading and reading. I've got this monster pile of books um, on California. And it's, it's, such a, it's such a wonderful escape from the pandemic and, and this moment in time, actually. Yeah. Casey, what's been, what, what's been the reaction to people, by people to the book? Like what sort of communications have you gotten after people have read it? Um, I've, oh, I've gotten such wonderful emails and calls from people and, and emails from people I don't know. But I, the, the one that I, that I hate is like when people say, oh, that they feel that they felt guilty reading it. Um, because it made them feel guilty about how they were spending their own attention. Mm. And, I just, and, I, and I, I, I just hope that no one feels sort of judged by it and that they know that I'm as glitchy and struggling and sort of in the, in the thick of trying to focus myself. I would never want anyone to feel judged as if I were saying, you should be better, you know? Yeah, I, I didn't, you know, it, as I think I said earlier, the big takeaway for me was about thinking of attention as a way to experience pleasure. Yes. Oh, I'm so, that's a wonderful, if that's your takeaway, Roxanne, I'm so happy that that's your takeaway. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, you know, my attention has always been pretty good that's not been um, 
a huge problem, but it, it, so even for me who didn't consider it a problem, this gave me the benefit of thinking, you know what, I'm going to think about how I use my attention because of the possibility of pleasure. Right. Exactly. Right. And just making your life a little bit richer. So what did you, you know, let, let's, let's, let's close with this, Casey. What did you hope the book would accomplish? What, when you set out to do it, what was your hope for it? It felt futile at the time because it was, it was, this was 2015, but I hoped that I could push back a little bit against this inevitable sense that Silicon Valley had just won. It had won, it had stolen our minds and we had no recourse and we had no hope. And this was the inevitable way we were going to live staring at our phones, not being conscious of where our attention was going. I just wanted to push back on that the slightest bit, Roxanne. All right. Well, I'm going to say mission accomplished. <laughs> Thank you. I, th I think you got it done. So we've been talking with Casey Schwartz, who wrote a book. I'm holding it up. I don't know how well you can see it. Attention, a love story. And, you know, Casey, I want to thank you because I think what you did with the personal stories, with the history, with the story of David Silver that we didn't get to by <laughs> writing about the piece about David Foster Wallace. It, it was, I just think you did a great job and people on Adderall, not on Adderall, anybody trying to think about how they spend their time really needs to be reading your book. So thank you for writing it and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Roxanne. All right, you have, so, and the baby didn't cry. Oh, thank God. K Casey had to move from one room to the other, so the baby's on the other side of that door, but, <laughs> but he's we didn't back. have a problem. Thank God. All right, Casey, thanks so much. Good night. Thank you. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Don't forget to buy the book. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.